0: Hello and welcome to the Cornerstone League podcast, bringing together credit union advocates, thought leaders, champions, and more. I'm your host, Tanya Ditburner, Cornerstone League Director of Communications and Media Relations. And today we'll be talking about cryptocurrency. What is it? Why should credit unions care about it? And what credit unions can do to prepare to incorporate crypto services and blockchain technology into their business lines. We'll cover what's happening on the regulatory side of things, what NCUA can do to help develop guardrails to protect credit unions and their members, and possible use cases. With me today is Nathan Benke, Cornerstone League Associate Regulatory Compliance Counsel, and one of our in-house crypto subject matter experts. Nate's been at the league for about eight years and is part of our powerhouse regulatory and compliance team, which works hard to decode quickly changing legislation and regulation for Cornerstone League members. Kind of a superpower, if you ask me. Nate, thanks for joining us.
1: Hi, happy to be here.
0: So we'll just jump right in. On a high level, what are cryptocurrency, blockchain, and decentralized finance. And what do credit unions need to know about each of these areas?
1: Well, breaking those down, cryptocurrency is more or less, it's an intangible form of tender. Not necessarily, it's not backed by any particular country. It can be pegged to a particular, like a legal tender's value. And there's a lot of coins that, that uh, or virtual currency that does that, things that are, they call them stable coins. But more or less when you hear we think about cryptocurrency, you're thinking about Bitcoin or you hear like Ethereum or Libra or any of these other, they're starting to become ones that are established by particular parties. But when you talk about Bitcoin, kind of the original, um, what everybody starts to think about, it's one that first comes to mind. But essentially it's kept all in the virtual space. People that participate in that system are given what's called a unique sort of private ID. And that's kept with a ledger of how many, how much of that currency that they currently hold and what's known as a digital wallet. So if they would like to make a payment to somebody else, they can use that private key to generate a another code that they would give to another individual to pay. And you can also give, and uh, they call it like a public, you, you can give someone a public address and they can pay you through that public address. That way you never expose your private code. Your private code is very much, I think it would be akin to the closest analog in the regular world in the credit union world might be your, your PIN maybe, or your password or your online account. It's not really a straight analog to that, but it's as close as we're going to get. It's the access point for your holdings within that particular cryptocurrency.
0: That's the private key, right?
1: Correct. That's the private key. So you would have you you can actually generate as many, like with Bitcoin, you can generate as many public keys as you want, you know, to receive payment through, which is kind of kind of interesting. And don't even have to be online to do that. But it was very, very large exponential figure in the amount of those keys that can be made. In it. And that's that way for a reason and that you don't ever have to expose what your private key is. Because if somebody had that, they could come in and report that they're transferring all of your funds out and they would have all the authorization to do. So that's generally the most important part of what you're preserving. And there's one of those for every single form of currency that you would have.
0: What about blockchain technology? Can you talk about that real quick?
1: When you're talking about blockchain, you're talking about that was known as a distributed ledger. And a distributed ledger is very different. Within like the credit union world, when we talk about how, how much somebody has on deposit, like funds on deposit, that's a record that's kept by the credit union. They've got some sort of internal system that says, you've got $12,000 in your account, some figure like that. When a transaction comes through the recorder taking off of that, that's all recorded and reported by the credit union. When we talk about blockchain technology and distributed ledgers, what we're talking about is a lot of different people are all tracking your holdings at any particular time. So when you're talking like about Bitcoin, everybody has a certain amount that's that they have within their life that they own, a certain amount of that credit that they own. The way that that's recorded is by every single member of that system having a record of what that is. And so what they do is make sure is when someone makes a transfer or something, everybody kind of compares notes as to what transfers have been made. And they sort of come to an agreement based on a mathematical calculation challenge and a few other things to agree on what somebody actually has. When we talk about blockchain, the the block that we're referring to is a block of transactions that's part of that ledger. And so it's built of many, 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 many different blocks, which are all groupings of transactions. And so you could download that entire blockchain. And I think if you wanted to set up your own node within Bitcoin today, it would probably take about a day or so to go through there and get up to speed on that.
0: What about decentralized finance?
1: Decentralized finance is actually somewhere of a newer development Essentially what it is about right now, it's about 5% of the cryptocurrency market. What it allows you to do is at a high level, if you needed funding for something, borrowing for money or something through that system, rather currency from that system, from other users, you could set up what they call a self-executing contract as to where you could request 500 Ether and people would lend you that money through that system to you. And then you would repay it based on a set of conditions being met the idea of it is, is that it's like taking out a loan like you would at a credit union, except you're taking it out from a lot of different people, from a lot of different sources. And rather than having one controlling entity to that, like a credit union that maintains that it's controlled by that system, but it's not. And that system is run by many, many, many different individuals. So it's not, there's not one central point of access for how that's done.
0: Truly decentralized.
1: It's truly decentralized. It's like crowd borrowing really for the most part, except there's a lot more math involved.
0: So, what is happening in the crypto space right now that credit unions need to be watching?
1: Well, for starters, we don't. A lot of people are sort of shifting a little bit of their you know, money towards investing in these products. And I, and I can be honest: when this came out in two thousand eight, this was prior to me even going to law school. So, you know, I, I would read about this sort of in my spare time, and I thought, you know, hey, what a joke! No one's going to buy into this, or whatever. Okay. <laughs> right. I think a lot of people, some sort of people today, probably saw that same sort of approach, but it has become, you know, a medium of tender that people will accept for transactions. And so you're going to start to see people looking for ways to move money either between those, like to make it into legal tender to find some way to spend that. I mean, as of right now, the value of Bitcoin, like to one, it's like 60, 61, almost 61, $60, dollars per Bitcoin. I mean, so people are putting serious investment dollars into these kinds of things. But as far as to what credit unions need to be most aware of, you're going to have members that may be using this or maybe working on exchanges or maybe even operating as money transmitters. And this has kind of been somewhat of the concern of, say, like the financial crimes enforcement effort for some time and that they want to know who may be operating as like an unlicensed transmitter. So if you see one of your members involved in a lot of exchange activity, you may need to ask them questions. You may need to shut down that account based on their account opening agreements, because we have to be able to devote the appropriate amount of resources and doing due diligence on that account to make sure we can tell or detect criminal activity. So if we see something odd, it's our role to step in under our BSA obligations and to make sure that that we don't allow that to continue and that we report it when we do see it. So that's kind of the starting point for that. As far as where they may need to look in the future is that it's very possible that members may want to work within this system. They may not know it very well, but they kind of know sort of what they want. And they may want us to be a player in how they access that system. We don't really currently, at present, have much of a mechanism, any Craigans that I'm aware of, definitely not in the Cornerstone League that I'm aware of. I mean, you may know of one that are really working extensively in this area to kind of bridge that gap. And so one of the keys to sort of mainstream acceptance would be to, I think, link in one of the more traditional finance sources uh, into giving access to that system. And we just currently don't have that, but we are seeing movement towards that from NCUA. They just put out this request for information asking us as an industry, what is it that we see as our needs and needs that we might have from them from a regulatory standpoint?
0: So let's talk about that real quick. The NCUA recently requested information on digital assets and related technologies. And Cornerstone recently submitted our position on digital assets and related technology, which includes what NCUA can do to develop guardrails around them. Can you speak to that a little bit?
1: Sure. First and foremost, we want to be a place, at least we can initially be a place where people feel safe in storing their information for this in somewhat of a custodial capacity. And um, that means holding onto somebody's digital wallet, their balance, private keys. We already have our own sort of security requirements, information security under 12 CFR 748 for other kinds of information. We already have a role as far as things like, you know, more physical things like a safe deposit box. I know that even in Texas, I believe there's, we can hold, I think, through through the state, you know, a certain amount of gold or silver or precious metals, those kind of things. So we already sort of have. have been playing in a role very similar to that. And I think moving forward, we just need to know from NCOA, if we decide to take on being a a custodian for someone's digital wallet, doesn't matter what kind of currency it is, a virtual currency we're using, what do we need to have to be able to do that? Or what, what are you going to require that we do that? I think right out the gate, members are going to want to know that, is my information protected? How it's protected? How is it accessed? And also, if in the event that there is a breach, what's going to happen? Am I going to lose my money? I might lose my investment in this product. And so as part of what we wrote in to talk about was exactly that. We need to know what we need and what our standards will be for holding those kinds of things. We talked about things like um, having a cold wallet, for example. And what that means is that undoubtedly because this is a you're dealing in the virtual space, okay, there will be times where you're going to be transmitting key codes and things to transact on a virtual network. And so what's talked about often is with dealing with what they call a cold wallet is that your information is stored at some place that's not connected to the Internet you can make, or you can give somebody like a public address to send you money and you can work with that sort of, that's the part that you expose to people. There's not really a need for that information to be connected nonstop. That's a high risk intrusion point for hackers to get that sort of information. Um, we would want that to be part of any system that they say, mandate that you do keep some information air gapped in a way from from intrusion. You're also gonna wanna have physical protections on that too. It wouldn't take much for someone working at a credit union to go in and steal a bunch of these and then start transferring a bunch of coins themselves. And when you're talking about a decentralized network like that, all they have to do is prove their record to enough people, enough nodes on that system that suddenly that money is mine. And once it's gone, it's gone. So we're looking at asking like, okay, what how do we, you know, how how can someone access those numbers if they want to use it, if we're the ones that hold them, do we have it linked to their accounts, you know, maybe in uh, generating those kind of things. Like how do we deal with requests? And then at the end of the day, say we do fail in some way. Do we need to be insured for this? It's obviously not something that's going to be covered by share insurance, but are we going to require some sort of bonding system, some sort of uh, level of insurance to pay back on that in the case that our members' information is stolen and then uh, made off with? It's, it's a bit volatile, but I think it's not beyond what NCUA could designate. And I think with some, some of those guardrails there, I think it's something that some of our credit unions would be willing to take on.
0: What are some other use cases, or it, can you specify some use cases for cryptocurrency related to to how, how credit unions can incorporate crypto into their business line or blockchain and technology?
1: The, it's hard, it's a little bit hard for us to be involved in an area without like as far as being a source of money for that. If a member say said I want to designate my funds in a particular currency to. Lending in this way, we could potentially be a broker in that area for that if we stored their information and we could designate that for, for borrowing. The problem with doing that is then how do we secure that because we have our own regulatory requirements. We can't deal with certain parties under OFAC. And the bigger deal is is that when someone gives you an anonymous code, how do you can't track where that comes from? They could be operating out of a country that we can't do business with, like Iran or North Korea. And we know that those actors, especially North Korea, work in that space. It's not beyond to say they're not generating their own currency over there. If for some reason it was able to be tracked in some way that we had done business with them, we would be sanctioned and penalized heavily for that. So that's somewhat of a problem. Uh, As far as, and this is more of a recent development, there's only three states that I'm aware of that even have this has been a formal adoption of a definition under the Uniform Commercial Code as adopted by those states that recognizes virtual currency as something that you can perfect as they would call it, meaning that you have somewhat of a controlling interest in what that is. And the reason that that's important is that it can be used as collateral to, as backing for a loan, meaning you would own that versus anybody else's claim to own it. Similarly, like like putting a lien on a house or filing a financing statement. And a matter of fact, in in Texas, there was just a bill passed that that did exactly that, where you're able to perfect an interest in that virtual currency a little bit of fair skepticism there, and you're talking about something that's controlled by non-state entities, and you have a state that's attempting to control those entities in some way. My viewpoint on that once I saw that, Bill, was, well, it's, it's nice to have recognition. We definitely need somebody recognize this as a real thing because people are assigning real value to this and a very, very high value. The problem comes in is the only way you're really going to be able to enforce what you're wanting is to put it on the end user, somebody with a real name. And so if I say I'm filing a financing statement on Tom's 75 uh, bitcoins as you know, collateral for a construction loan or something like that, and he goes and spends it somewhere else, what is my recourse? And so it was going to probably end up happening is he's probably going to have to transfer that to a account held by the credit union. And that, and, you know, as some sort of share security or restrict the use of that. And when you're talking about more smart contracts and things, you could probably set those kind of conditions in there. So it would release upon a condition being satisfied. So there's a lot of potential there for us to sort of develop into that. But again, we don't have any guidelines. We don't hold, we don't, I don't need any currently hold virtual currency. So we would need something, some regulatory guidance on how we would do that, how we would like segregate it out, how, you know, it, you couldn't just have it in one big ledger, It'd be a little bit of work that we haven't quite shook out yet.
0: Well, thanks so much for your perspective. It's a lot to think about and a lot to learn. So many new vocabulary words, right? You know, smart contract, the Merkle tree, nodes, things like that. I would wonder if credit unions would be wise to do some work in the background and learn about it on their own, obtain certifications such as the decentralized finance expert certification as offered from the blockchain council, for example. I'm going through that right now. And that's why.
1: I'm yeah, me too. Yeah, working. are Are
0: you so. really? <laughs> Mm -hmm. It's a five-hour course, but I find myself pausing every once in a while to just take notes and review the module one more time just because it's uh, it's so much information.
1: To to work in that space, fortunately, you don't have to have every person at your credit union knowledgeable in every aspect of what this is. There are, just like with anything else, they could learn sort of what the end effects are of that. Mm-hmm. And they can be assigned, to, you know, to know that part really, really well. They don't have to know the entire scope of every little part of it. So the adoption of it isn't nearly as complicated as I think some people might. You definitely want experts, or either inside or outside. And we talked about that a little bit too in our comment letters. We sort of anticipated that a lot of credit unions may not have the internal sophistication to develop a program like that within their own staff. But we do know that there will be there will be CUSOs that will pop up to to offer that. Right. So that might be more of a turnkey solution. Maybe I'll be a little bit less of a profit, but um, it'll still offer services that people want.
0: Absolutely. Is there anything that we forgot to discuss, or that you'd like to add to this conversation?
1: As far as resources, Blockchain Council is great. They've got a lot of information out there. To be fair, you know, we're talking now about thirteen-year-old technology. Right. Uh, there are when I really started researching into this years ago, and then over the years, there's a million videos online that talk and give good in-depth explanations at different levels. So, I mean, a YouTube search that's going to pop it up, and they're listed that way too. I, this is a beginner level. This is a you know high level. This is a in-depth mathematical level and calculation. So, depending on how much you really want to know about it, you definitely can. And Knowing a little bit about how it works, I mean, I, I had a friend generating it. He had to set a big box full of video cards, which that's a whole different market pressure that's been caused by this. Is that it's very, very difficult to get a high-powered graphics card now because they're all being used to mine different kinds of virtual currency. So it's sort of weird, weird development. If you if you wanted, you know, if you wanted to play a game or something that requires a high-powered video card now, you're paying substantially over the price plus a premium for very desirable item on top. So it's, it's just weird. It's just a weird kind of circumstance, and the chip shortage didn't help either.
0: Yeah, we didn't even get into mining. Mining is—it's not just looking through computer screens. It's really a very involved and complicated process. And uh, miners are compensated for their efforts, right?
1: They are. That's that's how the entire blockchain is managed. Is that when you successfully add a block to the chain, like in Bitcoin, you you make money off of it. I mean, it's, you mm-hmm. make more currency off of it. Right. That's generated and given, and you distribute it usually amongst your team of miners. It's not usually one person with one computer. Now you're talking about like a big working group that does that. And that's what kind of perpetuates the system. You know, looking at Bitcoin, it's intended to go through 2140, but over time, they make it more difficult to add a block. Mm -hmm. And they also reduce the amount of rewards you get from each completed block that's added to it. So, you know, there will be a finite point to it at that point when we get to that. Most of the money generated is going to be through a transaction fee that's charged. Speaking to what you mentioned there, there is one last thing I would want to mention as far as. A FinCEN's point of view as to what requires registration is like a money transmitter Mm -hmm. because you have to you have to if you whether you're like a Western Union outlet or or you're a, a currency exchange you are required to register at the federal level as a money transmitter and so there have been two longstanding opinions from them the first being is that if you are you have a member that is simply involved in the generation of currency that does not require them to be registered as a money services business and so if you you know if you see someone that's transacting with a lot of maybe Withdrawals from, if there's some way to track that, that, that wouldn't require them to. So, you know, you may have individual members that are getting money that way out of a system. And that's a little bit different. But as far as if they're involved with the actual taking of the money and then transmitting it somewhere else, that is considered money services and they would have to register as an MSB. So we've seen from them, we've had other little advisories from time to time, but as far as like really concrete things to stick to, that's about where we've been at with it. Because I mean, the biggest problem is, is that by design, this is not meant to be controlled by a government entity. And the whole creation of Bitcoin came out of 2008 with 2008 financial crisis and wanting a system that was not controlled by you know, a central bank. I would expect they will resist this moving forward, especially with any other new currencies they might come up with. Although you are starting to see some large scale recognition of China's working on their own uh, virtual currency. I know there's some pilot, the pilot program here in the US through the Fed uh, working on their own e-currency. And that may be the future. We may all be doing transactions through our phones or something at some point or, or some other device instead of using actual paper currency.
0: It's not that strange anymore to think about it, really. No, it's not. Well, Nate, thank you so much for sitting with me today and talking with me about this very interesting topic.
1: Thanks for your time.
0: You have just listened to Episode 3 of the Cornerstone League Podcast. A huge thanks to Nathan Benke for sharing his time and knowledge with us on cryptocurrency, blockchain, and decentralized finance. Stay tuned to Cornerstone's channels for more thought leadership and resources on cryptocurrency and how credit unions can incorporate crypto into their business plans. This episode was hosted by me, Tanya Dipburner, and produced by Cornerstone League. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time.